help very much this morning if you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and have it open before you. That's on page 1191 in the Church Bible. We're going to be looking at, in particular, verses 1 to 8 that we read together. Remembrance Sunday is a very powerful and salutary reminder of how during the last hundred years, well, a little under hundred years, but how our national life and the life of the whole world has been ravaged and damaged by wars. And sadly, the process continues. And it's necessary to ask, and I don't know I've ever asked the question quite like this before, how do Christians, how do we play our part as members of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of the world as it is. You may perhaps ask, well, how? Well, the answer is straightforward, of course. First of all, just by the kind of lives we live where God has placed us. The individual is important. But this chapter emphasises a unique contribution we can make. A contribution which, if I'm honest, I'm afraid we may often neglect. What is that unique contribution? Well, this passage identifies it explicitly as prayer for those who are in authority over us. Let me show you how relevant that is. In your private prayers this morning, did you pray for our government or our governments? In the church prayer meeting this week, or in our church meetings generally, does prayer for our royal family, our government, always have a place? If the answer is no, then this passage has much to say to us this morning. Paul is establishing for Timothy, a young pastor, a priority. Look at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Now the words that Paul uses, chooses to use, are clearly underlining a priority. I want us to notice them because they are not my words, but the words that Paul was inspired to write. First of all, the word urge. I urge you. And then the words translated first of all. Now, they're both strong expressions. To urge is to beg, to entreat, to beseech. In other contexts, it means to summon, to command. And then the words translated, first of all, indicate a chief priority. So Paul is about to urge upon Timothy, and through what he writes to us, not only a priority, but a first priority. So one of God's purposes for his people in the world, in every period of history, including this ninth day of November 2003, is that we as his people should concentrate 
on prayer. Christians are to be praying people. It's narrowed down in verse 1, it is prayer for everyone, for all. Now again I find that challenging. As we meet together for prayer, think of the last prayer meeting you were at. Was it just domestic concerns we prayed for? Or did we pray for the world that God loves so much that he gave his one and only son? It's so easy in our prayers, our personal prayers, our joint corporate prayers, to be praying for ourselves, for the church, and not doing what God says. And we're here charged to pray for all men and women, for the world of men and women in general, and in particular for people who have need or who ask for our prayers. In our prayers, we're not just to be praying for ourselves, but for others. And there's a special focus, look at verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. Now that has special relevance on remembrance Sunday. Christians have a dual citizenship. The Bible speaks of two kingdoms. There are only two kingdoms as God sees it. There's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan that is, and there's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We were all born into the kingdom of Satan. We inherited that from Adam and Eve, our first parents. But the Lord Jesus came, died, rose again, that we might become members of God's everlasting kingdom, of which glorious things are spoken. It is a kingdom into which we need to enter by new birth. You cannot enter this kingdom in any other way than by being born again. And when that happens, you have a glorious assurance for the future. You have a heavenly citizenship. But, At the same time, all the time you live in this world, you have a human, earthly citizenship. And our duty is to respect our sovereign, our elected leaders, to obey the law, pay taxes, and in particular, pray for them. So that in our praying for others, Paul says, which we would all accept as the right thing to do, the priority, the first thing at the top of the list is to be for those who have the rule over us. Now, as you think about that, that makes eminent good sense. The Bible teaches that human government is something God instituted for our common good. Even bad government is better than no government at all. And it is our responsibility, therefore, to accept the governments that we have within the limits that are prescribed in our choice. We may not always respect the people in office, but we are to respect the office that they hold. And God accomplishes his purposes for his people and his kingdom through different political systems. It doesn't matter whether there's a monarchy, or a democracy, whether there's a president, a prime minister, or a dictator. We mustn't make the mistake of thinking that God needs a democracy or a constitutional government to achieve his will. God is sovereign over the affairs of all the nations. Remember when Paul wrote this, 
the authority under which he lived was the Roman Empire and that several times he found himself wrongly accused, placed under the threat of death, imprisoned. Paul makes no distinction between those rulers who are just and those who are not. It is for the common good, the public good, that there is government. I was struck just in my Bible reading the other day to read in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says to God's people who have been taken into captivity, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. If it prospers, you too will prosper. Established, ordered government is necessary if we are to live orderly lives. Look at verse 2. Lives that are peaceful and quiet in all godliness and holiness. God's call to us is to lead godly lives. What does that mean? Well, a godly life is a life that is lived with the approval of God alone. Living in the light of the fact that God sees us even though others may not see us. We're not only to do what is right with regard to authority because it may be for our good, but because it pleases God. Lives that honour him, please him. We should pay our income tax not simply because we'll get into trouble if we're found out for not paying it correctly, but because God knows everything about my income and it's with God I have to deal with every form I fill in or every return I make. Notice how godliness goes hand in hand with holiness. And Paul doesn't use the usual word for holiness here. He uses one meaning honesty, seriousness. In other words, Paul says you can't live a quiet and peaceful life if you neglect godliness, that is living as you ought towards God, and living as you ought towards others. Let's take Paul's argument a little further. To achieve this right kind of praying, Paul says we must use prayer in all its parts. Now he mentions four. Look at what he says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. God-pleasing prayer consists of four parts. Notice what they are. Requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. Now the first three are very similar, but there are distinctions. First of all, requests. The word request indicates prayers that are for concrete situations, a specific need. It's the word that was used when the Lord Jesus said that he had prayed for Peter, that when Peter was restored, he would strengthen his brethren. You hear of a need, you read in the bulletin of someone ill, or some missionary need, and you pray for it. That is a request. But then secondly, prayers. Prayers are for those needs and situations where prayer is prompted not because of some immediate need but because of needs that are always there. Let me give you an example. Every day I want God's name to be hallowed. Every day as a believer I want his will to be done. Every day I want his kingdom to come. 
The prayers found in the Lord's Prayer represent the prayers Paul is talking about. I find it helpful to pray that prayer every day. Oh, I know you can pray it so it becomes routine, but you can ask God to help you not to do it in that way. Then intercession. In intercession, we request, both in requests and prayers, for individuals, for people we know, for non-Christians, members of our family, situations where God's help is desperately needed. And then comes thanksgiving. Our prayers are to include everyone, and so we are to pray for all that we see that is pleasing to God in everyone. We're to thank God for the benefits that he gives. Now Paul's argument now goes a step further. And this is where it becomes very significant. The requests, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving we offer have a special focus. And they're to be offered because of an understanding we have and which we're to live by. What is that understanding? Verse 4. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray for those in authority, not only that we may live quiet and ordered lives. Thank God that in our own country there hasn't been war for a long period of time now. But we pray it so that the progress of the gospel throughout the world may not be hindered. The gospel is not an end in itself. It is the only means of salvation for lost men and women. Verse 4, God our Saviour want all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is not suggesting here the idea of universalism, that everyone will be saved in the end. We know that isn't true. Wants is not to be interpreted as decreed or determined. But God knows that the need of all men everywhere is salvation, whatever their nationality where two nations may war against one another, the greatest need of men and women on both sides is salvation. Alienated, separated from God, men and women everywhere need a saviour. And God's will is plain. I take no pleasure, the Lord says, in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Here then is the priority. Prayer for all. Prayer for those in authority. Now Paul gives an explanation now. Look what he says. And it underlines his importance. First in verse 3 it is good. That simply means it's morally right. Every Christian should be committed to what is morally right. It is good. Therefore it is pleasing to God. It pleases God our Saviour. Later on in this letter, Paul says to Timothy, we have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. Potentially, God is the saviour of everyone. He is able to save all. But he is the saviour in reality of all who put their trust in his Son. So the reason why we pray for peace, for quiet, for our Prime Minister our first minister in Scotland, 
is that if there is peace and quiet, it will make it easier for the gospel to be proclaimed, which is the only way that men and women like ourselves and every man and woman on the face of the earth may find salvation through Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul describes it. Verse 4, the gospel is called the truth. God is the source of all truth. He is the God of truth. At the centre of the gospel is his son who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. It is this gospel that the Father has given us. It is this gospel that the Son died to make possible. And because it is the truth, it is utterly reliable. There's not a man or woman on the face of the earth to whom I may not say, Jesus Christ is the only Saviour and he can be your Saviour as you trust in him. It proclaims the truth that there is one God, Paul says here. There's only one. There's only one infinite being, our creator. And the truth, the gospel declares that there's not only one God, verses 5 and 6, but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Just look at that word mediator. It's been used a lot recently among the firefighters among the postmen who've been taking unofficial action. What they need is a mediator. A mediator implies a controversy. And sin has given rise to a quarrel between God and every man and woman. Jesus Christ, God's Son, the mediator, undertook to make peace, to bring God and man together in the nature of an umpire, an arbitrator. In the Old Testament, there's a man called Job who's desperately aware of his own sinfulness, even though other people would have thought that he was a righteous and a good man. And he cries out, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Job was rightly afraid of the judgment of God upon his sin. And God sent a mediator. Our Lord Jesus represents God to men and women. He represents men and women to God. When he said, I am the truth, he went on to say, no one comes to the Father but by me. If you say, well, how did he become a mediator? Look at what Paul says in verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom for all men. He was a ransom substitute. The ransom metaphor is drawn from the ancient slave market where a slave could obtain his freedom if someone paid the ransom price. A ransom price is something given in exchange for another as the price of redemption. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he was a ransom for my sins. I deserve God's judgment, his wrath, death, and all that follows there. But the Lord Jesus, my substitute, took it for me that I might go free. He voluntarily gave himself for my salvation. And says Paul in verse 6, 
This was proclaimed in its proper time. What was that proper time? Well, it was after that other proper time that we'll be celebrating at Christmas, that when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, this is the gospel Paul preached. It's the gospel he lived by. And he says in these verses that he was a herald. He was an ambassador. Wherever he went, didn't matter whether it was Roman culture or Greek culture or wherever he was, he said, be reconciled to God. That's the most important thing. He was ready to go wherever God wanted him to go. That was what an apostle was. Someone sent, willing to go. Do you see then why this priority is so important? Our priority is to pray for all men and women, for those in authority, in the context of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus, the uniqueness of his gospel, and its relevance to everyone. It's only as there is peace in the world and quietness, freedom from movement, that the gospel may unhindered go into every part of the world. Now that was true in the first century. I wonder if you remember when you were at school. I only just do. But I remember hearing of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The world was at peace. As Paul went, he didn't have to have a passport. He could go into any part of the Roman world as a Roman citizen. There was peace as there had not been before and as there has not been since. And so he says, pray for the Roman authority that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives. Oh, I want to encourage us to pray for those in authority. You all know, most of you will, as the Wycliffe Bible translators. Our pastor, Peter Granger, and his wife worked with Wycliffe for many years and they're still associated with it. You may not know that Wycliffe began in 1935. It began in a little tiny town called Sulphur Springs in Arkansas. And what happened was there were a group of young missionaries they were hardly missionaries because they hadn't yet gone and they had a concern for Mexico. But you couldn't get into Mexico. Uh, there were many in the government who were atheists and fanatically so and they would not allow people to go into the Mexican tribes that needed the Gospels and needed the Scriptures to hear the Gospel in their own tongue. And in Sulphur Springs, this group of young missionaries set aside a day for prayer. It seemed almost impudent that they should pray that there should be a change in Mexico. And even as they were praying, as the day went on, someone who had gone into town to get provisions to cook the evening meal heard on the radio in the town that the government in Mexico had changed. The President Cardenas of Mexico had dismissed his cabinet, including all the fanatical atheists. 
and Whitcliffe was born. That was how the work began, as a small group of people took God's word and his promises and prayed for those in authority. Let me just mention to you Paul's final emphasis. We mustn't miss verse 8. His final emphasis if this first priority of prayer is to be maintained. Verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Prayer must be, can only be, properly made from lives and actions that are holy. One of the best contributions you and I can make to Edinburgh, in the student community, in our work community, is prayer from lives that are holy. The lifting up of hands indicates earnest prayer. But says Paul, that earnest prayer must arise from lives that are right with God and with other people. If we cherish sin in our hearts, God will not listen to us. Secondly, prayers are made from lives that avoid anger and argument. Look at verse 8, without anger or disputing. True prayer, true prayer cannot exist alongside arguments and anger. It could even be that we may be angry against the government and therefore not pray for them. That may be all the more reason to pray for them. Disagreement among us precludes prayer. I heard of a minister just a few weeks ago who took it upon himself to cancel the church prayer meeting. He said, we will have no more prayer meetings until we come together in a right attitude to God and towards one another. These requirements all underline the great trust God has committed to us. I don't think it's presumptuous for me to say this morning from this passage that God's greatest concern this morning is that in every part of the world, whether it's Sri Lanka or Rwanda or Burundi or South America or Europe, his greatest concern is that the name of his son might be honoured in every place as he's uplifted as the only saviour and men and women might be brought to know him. We live in a world of dying men and women. The world is full of cemeteries. I don't know how many Edinburgh has, but it has many. And it's full of war graves, war cemeteries. And the only answer for dying men and women is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what helps that gospel to go forward is peace and quiet and governments that do not hinder the gospel. I want to end by just really some telling questions. My first one I mustn't forget. We've talked of the Lord Jesus as the mediator. Let me ask you this morning, is he your mediator? You know, that's the most important question I could ask. Is he your mediator? Do you know that he is the one through whom you have come to God and found forgiveness, eternal life, so that death has lost its sting for you, however it may come? If you're not sure of that, well, that's the most important thing that you're here for this morning. The most important thing. Let me urge you, 
the Lord Jesus stands ready now to save you as you call upon him. And then if that is true, if he is your mediator, I want to ask these two questions. Do we intelligently, and I say we, not you, do we intelligently, deliberately pray every day in some way for those who have the responsibility of government. And my second question is, when we meet for prayer, small groups, large groups, church prayer meeting, at the top of the agenda is this instruction of God's word. If the answer is no, I think we need to repent. I think we need to repent. And confession of sin must be followed by a deliberate putting of things right. Are we prepared for that this morning? God's word will only be fruitful in our lives this morning if from this day onwards we do not let a day pass without praying for these two things. That all over the world, men and women may lead according to God's will, his purpose, quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. And that the gospel may run and bring salvation to those who need it. If you say, how can I best do it? Well, I can only tell you what I find helpful. I try now never to read the front page of my newspaper without saying, is there anything I should be praying for? And when you hear the first words of the headlines on the television news or the radio news, to be ready to pray for those who will have responsibility. That's why we pray for Sri Lanka. That's why we pray for that school in Lincolnshire. And who knows what God may be pleased to do if we obey his word. A prayer together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. All of your word is so valuable and precious to us, but we thank you for the clarity of what you say to us here. Oh, our Father, grant that every one of us here this morning may know what it is to have the Lord Jesus as our mediator. Thank you that he says to us, come to me. Help us, Lord, to come just as we are with repentance and faith. And Lord, some of us feel this morning that we must come with repentance too. As we remember how often we fail to pray for those in authority. We criticise them. It may be we are scornful of perhaps the lives that they live, but we have not prayed for them. And we have failed them. And we have sinned against you. 
Oh, our Father, by your Holy Spirit, strengthen every good desire in our hearts to obey your word and grant that through our prayers your name may be hallowed, your will may be done and your kingdom come throughout the whole world. And we ask it for the glory of your dear Son, our only mediator and saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.